My name is Nathan LaRue. I'm an Episcopal priest living and working in Portland, Oregon. You might remember that interview that Oprah Winfrey did with Meghan Markle a couple years ago. Meghan was that young American actor who had famously and slightly improbably married into the British royal family, become Duchess of Sussex, and then decamped with her family and with Prince Harry to America after being treated abominably in the British tabloid press. Finally, after all the drama, Meghan was ready to talk, and Oprah got the scoop. And there was this great line in the interview. It became a meme on the internet. It was a pull quote in all the promos. Oprah says to Meghan at one point, were you silent? Or were you silenced? Oprah does this thing with her hand. She pinches her thumb and her forefinger together and traces an arc in the air with her index finger as if she's literally buttoning up the princess's mouth. Were you silent? Or were you silenced? Christianity has a a complicated relationship with silence. In this season of Advent, especially, we, we talk about it almost exclusively as a good thing. There's the deep silence of contemplative prayer, the sound of sheer silence that Elijah hears on Mount Horeb, the interior stillness that the psalmist urges. I mean, you can make a case that the the whole Christian spiritual tradition is a kind of riffing on silence. It's a theology of silence before it's anything else. Silence is the basic requirement for just about any sort of contemplative, mystical encounter with God. But there's this other side to silence. It's the, the side that Oprah was getting at in her question. For Meghan Markle, were you silent or were you silenced? And that's actually kind of an interesting spiritual question when you think about it. Certainly it is an astute question for one black woman to ask another. Oprah knows her New Testament, right? Paul says in Corinthians, in all the churches of the saints, women should keep silent. And then it gets worse. He says women are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything... Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And that still happens. I mean, you don't need me to tell you, right? Gender and race are, are two places of many where silence has been used in the Christian tradition as a tool of oppression and control. There's an English historian, queer historian, Darman McCulloch, who explores both sides of silence in a book that he creatively calls Silence, A Christian History. McCulloch writes, it is only in less than three out of 20 Christian centuries that churches have come round to saying that slavery is bad in all circumstances, full stop. Nowadays, he writes, Christians take this for granted. They have forgotten the huge moral revolution that has taken place to get to where they are now on this subject. For most of the past 20 centuries, On the subject of owning somebody else's body, Christianity has been deafeningly silent. And that culture of silence very rarely contributes to the thriving of our communities. I think about the centuries in which, I mean, hundreds of thousands of queer men and women have served this church faithfully as as priests, nuns, as vowed religious dedicated to celibacy, which allowed them this respectable and even holy option to opt out of compulsory heteronormativity. I think about the queer men and women who sang in the church's choirs and wrote the church's best music and played the organ and stayed after the potluck to clean up. I mean, Christianity would not have survived the modern world without queer people. And we have mostly been, on the subject of our actual lived experiences, silent or silenced. And that still happens. It happens for 
queer colleagues of mine in this famously progressive diocese of Western Oregon, the rules for our lives and our loves are very different the minute we start talking about them honestly with our bishops and our vestries and our congregations. And often in my experience, the policing comes from other queer people because nobody knows how to enforce and maintain silence more effectively than the ones who grew up learning it as an almost instinctual means of survival. So for some of us, this Advent call into a deeper silence is a complicated invitation. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been experiencing, experimenting with, with greater silence in the church that I serve, Trinity Cathedral in Portland. We've marked out a couple places in the liturgy where we ring a bell and invite everybody in the room to hold silence together until the bell rings a second time. And I gotta say, there is something viscerally powerful, at least to me, about sitting in a stone room full of a couple hundred people breathing together. I mean, that experience can change your life. I see people weeping. Silence is powerful. Silence is where our wounds lie. Silence is the place we ran to for refuge when the world was violent and frightening and confusing. Silence was where some of us found our safety and our home. We long to go back there. And we know all too well the cost of learning how to keep silence. The complications of, of honing that spiritual skill may be a little bit too effectively. I know in my rational, academically trained mind that the holy silence of contemplative prayer and the deafening silence of subjugated voices, I know that those are two different things, right? One does not necessarily have anything to do with the other, but both depend on this fundamental human activity, learning how to sit still and shut up. Were you silent or were you silenced? And I, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing in this world that I crave more deeply than silence, than real silence, the silence that lands in my body like a beautiful rare bird once in a blue moon. We all have these moments, right, when the world just stops for an instant and everything comes shimmeringly, glisteningly alive, like Auden's very queer words about the nativity. Everything became a you. Nothing was an it. That's silence. That's the silence of holy bodies. It's the Christmas silence, I think. It's the silence of the manger. We sing about it every year. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. That has become my favorite moment on Christmas Eve. It's the very end of the last service of the day. It's almost midnight or just after midnight on Christmas Day morning. The faithful gathered in the dark of a hushed cathedral. We light our candles. We sing Silent Night. And I know that the long, full day is almost over. And after all of the craziness of these beautiful, stressful, complicated services, there's this moment of profound stillness. I'm standing there at the altar. And that moment reminds me every single year why I stay in this job, why I love being a priest, one who is asked to hold other people's silences. Sometimes the silence of the confessional, if you like, the absolute sacrament of somebody else's most deeply held secret. So maybe when you hold other people's secrets for a living, you learn too well how to hold your own. Or maybe learning how to pray is really just learning how to direct a natural penchant for silence towards the place where it really belongs, to the giver of all good gifts, the heart of silence, the cloud of unknowing, 
the one to whom all hearts are open and all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That kind of silence isn't about holding secrets. That kind of silence isn't about hiding. It's about transparency and honesty and truthfulness before the one who made me. Finding myself in that silence, that's an experience, I think, that belongs to everybody. Reverberation of the Spirit is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Music for this podcast was performed by Dr. Catherine Webb. For more information, go to www.trinity-episcopal.org.